we can get it started here. If you don't have your notes yet, it is by the table, or Lindsay might be bringing some. People can raise your hand and we can pass on the notes. Uh, we're in lesson 11. And really, these lesson numbers is more of a marker <laughs> of the topic than, is there lessons that we had three, we had two on the same topic. So, kind of a continuation from last week on uh, sexual sins, but um, this one in particular, homosexuality and same-sex attraction. So, there is just so much that could be covered on this topic, and so I basically had to, to really pick and choose what I was going to talk about. Not that it's less important, the other things that I left out, or these are more important, but I think these might uh, encourage more discussion and um, things that I don't think we, most of the church would have questions about <laughs> where we stand. Um, but I think in terms of counseling, that this is, this is going to be helpful. So halfway through, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a podcast uh, by Truth and Love. It should be about 10 minutes. And then um, we'll have some discussion on that topic one as well. All right, so let's bow our heads on to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for uh, one more day that you have given us that we get to enjoy your creation, that we get to enjoy one another, and we get to enjoy your words, Lord. I was just thinking the other day, what a blessing it is for us to have our own copy of Scripture where we can go to whenever we want. What a blessing it is for us to come together and study these things, even though we know that the world is becoming more and more hostile towards your people and your church when it comes to this topic in particular. We still enjoy the freedom to speak freely on, on these things of what you have designed for men and women and how to live. Pray, Father, that you would um, be with your people, uh, encourage them, um, give them guidance, even as they have interaction with others. Um, and Lord, even if there are uh, people in our midst that might have some of these struggles, may we become passionate toward them and be a, a help um, to them through the word. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I, I was thinking, uh, really, um, it just is such a, a taboo, um, but it, it, it's going to become more common, you know, even among the church, in the churches. Uh, there's all sorts of sins that we're tempted, tempted with, and I, it wouldn't surprise me that in a church of 150 people, <laughs> we might have those that struggle doesn't mean that they necessarily give in to temptation, but uh, they might struggle with that. And I think we need to know how to address it biblically in a way that is encouraging, that is not discouraging to their faith and growth uh, in the Lord Jesus. All right. So I kind of give the first two sections a kind of a brief um, overview here of hom the topic of homosexuality. Really, um, if, if, if you read even within Christianity, there's just a, a broad spectrum of beliefs. That's why I put a little spectrum there from 
all the way from what the world believes, right, that this is just no normal part of human experience, it is determined by biology, um, influences and all those things. And um, Ed Welch, I relied heavily upon the, the chapter on the book that I have you guys read, Blame It On The Brain. So this chapter in particular, um, if you haven't read it, if you have the book, haven't read it, go ahead and read it when you get home. It's very instructional, and he talks about the different <clears throat> ways that even Christianity has interpreted some of the passages and what the homosexual community that claim to be believer is interpreting some parts of Scripture. So he kind of goes over those texts, explains their view, and then refutes biblically that this is inconsistent with Scripture. It is not possible. But basically, this is where... Um, it, it talks about here the primary cause, according to the world, is biology or deficit in a relationship with the same-sex parent or low self-esteem and so on. So this popular theory is almost all homosexuality, male and female, they say it's a deficit in the relationship with the same-sex parent. The theory is that there is a God-designed God need for same-sex love, affirmation, acceptance, and bonding. When these allegedly normal attachment needs have been left unmet, the needs become eroticized at puberty. And homosexuality is a drive to make good this relationship. So this is one end of the spectrum. It is the world's view. It's nothing immoral. This is just who people is. Kind of interesting that even the DSM at some point had uh, gender dysphoria um, and homosexuality as something abnormal a few years back. And then they removed it. And it's only when it makes people feel guilty about it or they, you know, they have guilt involved with gender um, when, they, when they transition, right? They make a uh, physical surgery to either remove parts of their sexual organs or uh, to try to implant or to, to fabricate. Um, that's when psychology would be help to these people that are struggling. So they don't see it as immoral, uh, it is amoral in their view. That's the one end of things. And then the other end, it's the view of the scripture that um, it is a behavior, simple behavior that is learned, but it's ultimately motivated by, by our heart's desire. Now, everything in the between <laughs> you will see here because it, you, know, you would have Worldly people that even acknowledge, yes, homosexuality is not good. Um, we're going to listen to the, the podcast later talking about uh, reparative therapy where they, and this is unbelievers, they acknowledge that homosexuality is not normal part of humanity and that there is a need to fix it, to repair it. Now, there's nothing biblical about reparative therapy, and we're going to listen to it uh, in a little bit. Um, so you have, you know, unbelievers that think this is sin, or that this is wrong behavior. They don't call it sin, but they see there's danger there. And then, on the Christian spectrum, you have a lot of Christians now affirming there's nothing wrong, you know, there's, this is related to the context of the past, it's not, nothing related to um, what the Bible really talks about. So, um, I, I'm going to read here a few 
uh, parts of, of the a chapter on homosexuality by um, Ed Welch. It says, when we listen closely to the application of this and the other psychological explanations, it looks like as if the church, while barricading the front door to keep out the brain theories, has left open the back door for, for psychological theories. The reason for this omission is clear. The church wants to emphasize that homosexuality is learned rather than biologically inbred, and since it is learned, and can, it can be unlearned. But notice the problem, he points here. All this, this, this does is suggest that the orientation toward homosexuality starts a little after birth instead of before birth. The world says, you're already born this way. And then some churches, and, and sometimes we can make even say, well, it's a learned behavior. Yes, it's a learned behavior. But you're basically saying it, it is still caused by something from the outside. It is not something on the inside. It is something that they learned. So we are left at almost at the same place as the biological theories. The orientation is still established by forces outside ourselves, and our orientation precedes the sin. That's why he on the there they put sin as a secondary cause. This reasoning infers that the real problem, the deep problem, is a homosexual orientation for which we're not responsible. A diagnosis of sin and a cure that includes repentance uh, would be considered superficial because it's only dealing with the outward causes or what they call causes. We don't believe to be causes. The biblical view then, that's the other end of the spectrum, acknowledges that there may be psychological and biological influences in the development of homosexuality. These things, you know, that they mention here as genetics, peers, family, um, sexual violation by an older person, and so on, you know, people that were raped when they're children, all of those things are influences, but they're not causes. In fact, the Bible would warn us not to take lightly the vast number of possible influences. However, the scripture states adamantly that such influences are not what make us unclean, right? Instead, it is from within, out of men's hearts that come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, and all these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. This is Mark 7, 21, 23. So this means that, uh, that our sinful orientation has innumerable expressions in our lives. And with some people, it is greed, or jealousy with others, it is sinful anger, and with others it can be expressed in a homosexual desire. So it really boils down to this. Um, it, you know, it comes from the heart. Um, it is interesting when they say, well, I was born this way. Uh, you know, I agree with you. Yes, you were born this way, and so was, was I. We're all born into sin. I think that is, it is a helpful Understanding as you have a conversation, say we all are born into sin. This sinful nature that resides in our hearts uh, will manifest itself in different in different ways. And we're going to get here a little bit to to James, specifically talking about how each person has a tailored made inclination to certain sins than others. Now, what is the biblical data on homosexuality? It's clear as day. It is sin. So I'm just going to read a few passages here that is already copied. I just copied there in your um, sheet. 
Leviticus 18.22, it says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. Uh, Leviticus 20, verse 13, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable, and they must be put to death, and their blood will be on their own head. So back in the Old Testament, not only was uh, a sin, it was a capital punishment kind of sin. While they were enjoying themselves, this is Judges 19, it's referring to the wicked man um, in Sodom, um, uh, no, in um, Gibeah, in Gibeah. Uh, remember, Gibeah, Saul, that's, that's, that's the place here. While they were enjoying themselves, um, some of the wicked man, uh, this is the Levite and his cucumbine, of the city surrounded the house, and the owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't, don't do this disgraceful thing. They really wanted them, the, the Levite, to come out, and so they would abuse him. And then the New Testament uh, reinforces that this behavior is not acceptable um, because of idolatry, uh, Romans 1, 26, 27, because of this idolatry, um, God gave them over to shameful lusts, even to their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with the woman and were inflamed with lust for one another. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, do not be deceived in either the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, and the word, uh, a Greek word there, specifically koitai, is a word for homosexual offenders, says that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the same word shows up in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. It says, Law is made not for the righteous, but for the breakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, for adulterers, and what the translation translates that perverts is the same word as senokoitai, which is the homosexual offenders. Jude, Jude chapter 7, making a reference back to Genesis uh, with the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says that the surrounding towns gave themselves to sexually, uh, sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer punishment of eternal fire. And even God's punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah became kind of a, a, a paradigm of what is going to happen in the future with hell and people will be burned. Um, so true scriptures, by inference, then uh, we think about uh, Jesus' words. Uh, some students of scripture prefer to hear the prohibition against homosexuality from Jesus' own word as a way of to make it more conclusive. That's one of the main claims of the homosexual Christian community is that while Jesus did not speak against homosexuality specifically, never used the word, he never talked about it, but there are many sexual behaviors that Jesus did not address specifically, such as incest, bestiality, or rape. That doesn't mean that they were permissible, just... Jesus upheld the Old Testament law. Furthermore, he indicated that 
The only alternative to heterosexual marriage was celibacy. Remember when the Pharisees came to Jesus and had a question regarding uh, marriage and, and, and divorce and all of that? And Jesus is saying, you know, divorce is not uh, permissible. This is not God's design for you. You know, Moses only gave like a, an exception for divorce, and this is in case of sexual morality. Or, um, so at that point, because the Pharisees were really, oh, I, I didn't like this woman. I'm just going to divorce her. And, and Jesus said, you know, so if you're not uh, staying with this person, you better, better not even marry them. So basically, he's saying is there is no other option for, you know, from heterosexual marriage. It is only celibacy for life. It's, me- it's better not to marry. That's what he says. And then he comes on, and you're like, whoa, this is harsh. And, and he says, yes, it's harsh. And those that are able to bear it, they'll be able to bear it. You know, those that are gifted with singleness, um, you know, for the sake of the kingdom, they will do it. So he indicated that only alternative to heterosexual marriage is celibacy. And then uh, Matthew 5, there is an inference there that Jesus condemned also mental lust. There were those saying, well, I did not commit physical adultery. I'm just, I, I just, it was just in my mind, just in my thoughts. So Jesus, well, you already committed adultery in your heart when you lust after uh, someone else's wife or uh, someone that is not your wife. Well, in the same way, we'd say, if you're lusting after someone of your same sex, they're not your spouse, obviously, that is also lusting in your heart. So this is basically the, the, the passages, um, the summary of the texts that, you know, now we're going to get to more specific things here um, as far as this, this goes. I did put a little uh, picture in there and I think it is important for us to acknowledge that, that this world is becoming more and more extreme. Um, you know, they're, they're coming for the church. Uh, last, last year or two years ago, when the podcast was recorded, it was in, in view of what happened in Lafayette, where the, the community was trying to forbid counseling to homosexuals or to children that were transitioning. And they were saying, you guys are haters, you were just oppressing the children, and, you know. And I, I think it is, there is a, a family there hiding in the closet. Uh, they were scared of the whole band that is being aggressive. And if you read the, some of the stuff, the cards that they were holding, the boycott Christian businesses down, uh, with straight Christians, boo, binary, and then flags of pride. It's just like it's in our face. It is everywhere. I mean, you, you go to, when we get, is that June, the Pride Month? I, I don't even, is it June? Yeah, it, it, it's everywhere. You go to Panera, it's like the big flags. You go to, it, it's being forced on us. And, and I think that's where I, I just wanted to raise a discussion here. Um, they will do this no matter what, <laughs> you know, they, they, because they hate the truth, you know, like in Romans says that it, it, there is a suppressing of the truth, and yet, um, how do we deal with this, and how we interact with homosexuals, I think, it, it, it makes a, a, a huge difference. Um, 
are we loving homosexuals in the same way that we're loving uh, those that are criminals, um, that are in jail? You know, we have jail evangelism. <laughs> Why people don't have homosexual evangelism? You know, to, to give them the hope of Christ. Um, I, I remember here, a, at some point, my, I had a, a really good friend that he was, that man was gifted with evangelism. It was just his heartbeat. I had a real struggle just initiating conversation, but he could just like total strangers, strike a conversation and present the gospel. So he had this idea, Ronaldo, what do you think of us going to evangelize the, the homosexual in the street? But at that time, I thought it was like, well, it's a brilliant idea. <laughs> and we did. And, and you know, I, one of them actually came to church for quite a while because of our and they were, you know, transvestites. They were prostituting themselves. And so he really didn't recognize when he showed up to church. It was like, oh, is this? The? Because we'd never seen the person, you know, wearing men's clothes. Um, in any case, and then I remember one of them asked me, why are you here? Why are you, you know, just go to that lady sitting on the chair there at the street. Why are you coming to us? Well, because that's what Jesus did. He came to those that needed him. You know, yes, the lady over there needs Christ just as much as you do, but I need Christ as much as you do. So, anyways, just opening a little bit of discussion here. What do you think? How does the church um, have been, or um, how do you have some of those conversations at work? Any, any thoughts and comments so far? Yes, Kathy? Mm -hmm. And it is a really hard sin to break, you know, um, like... A lot of sexual sins, um, those that struggle with pornography, those that struggle with alcohol, you know, it, it's, it's a similar in the sense that it is a life-dominating sin. You know, some of, I think one of those guys that came to the church, they said, this is really hard. And, and one of the things is the church doesn't, the church didn't know how to interact with this guy, <laughs> you know, how to minister to him. As opposed to the gay community, he had a whole plethora of people that were there. Well, we're here to support you no matter what. Like, we're here to support you, yes, to not support your sinful behavior, but support your walk with God. You know, we want you to do well. And, and they acknowledge, I do not want to do this. It was kind of interesting that one of them we asked, because uh, a lot of them they would say, well, I, I have to do this for the money. Um, the majority of them, they would say, it's not for the money. It is because I like it. Um, and so um, it, is, it is a hard thing, but, you know, y you will have opportunities. The Lord will put in your family. I, mean, I have family members. Um, there are homosexual declared. Um, and how do we, we continue on loving them and really spelling the truth? Like Kathy said, um, you know, I, I love you, I appreciate you, but this is what the Bible calls it. I mean, this is not the ultimate. The, there, there is a level of degradation there, yes, um, but this is not the unpardonable sin. Um, and, and Christ have hope and help. Uh, I remember a young girl when I was in college. I went to a secular school when I went to pharmacy school, and um, I didn't know this, but... <laughs> We had, you know, kind of half and half, girls and, and, and guys, and half of the guys were gay. I didn't know this until then. Um, 
but in some of the girls as well were, were homosexuals. The Swiss one was struggling with depression. And the Lord opened a door, you know, for me to speak freely, and she listened and um, started reading the Bible together. And I, I, I had an in, and I said, you know, um, I, I wonder, because she felt a lot of guilt. I said, you know, it, it, it's normal that you're feeling guilt. Uh, th- this behavior, that's not how God designed you to be. And, you know, and she cried a lot. And, and so at some point she started attending a church. Um, but she just couldn't let go to follow Jesus. So but w- we don't know. I mean, think about Rosaria Butterfield. Right? If you haven't listened to her testimony, go on YouTube, Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield uh, testimony. It's just a beautiful thing, how, how God saved her um, and, and transformed her life. Uh, through the love of a pastor that opened the doors of his house for her. So, all right, so moving on here. Same-sex attraction. Um, I was going to play a video on this one. I was like, you know, I think it is better for us to just discuss this. <laughs> um, what is, is it a sin? Is it, is it, is it, this is a tricky question. Um, and, and the main thing that I wanted to discuss here is don't confuse temptation with sin. I basically copied to a, an article by Michael Emlet. It's five ministry priorities for those who are struggling with same-sex attraction. I think you had a balanced discussion on this. Um, there is obviously things that I wouldn't completely endorse on the article, maybe the way he phrased things, but generally speaking, I think he did a good job, on the, at least on these five points here. Says it is, he says here, it is, possible, is it possible to be tempted to gossip, but not to commit the sin of gossip? Yes, it is. We would say, another question, is it possible for a man to be attracted to a woman and not sin? Yes, it is. So this is the more trick, the, the tricky part, because attracted to requires a more precise definition, but I think I would agree that yes, it is possible. Uh, few would deny that a person could potentially have heterosexual physical attraction to someone and not sin. In the same way, um, it's true for same, homose- you know, same attracted strugglers as well. Is it possible for a man to experience attraction to another man and not sin? I think our knee-jerk reaction is yes or no here, and I think we should let, let's see what is this attraction entail, because there might be just um, more than just the thinking, the thought that popped up where you saw someone attractive and you're like, oh, they're, they're handsome or they're, they're beautiful, a woman might think. You might have not thought about this before, so we need to walk slowly through this. Then let's go to scripture. The first point there is that the Bible definitely teaches that it is possible to be tempted without sinning. Let's go to James chapter 1. So the nature of temptation does not necessarily point to, um, to the committing of sin. Otherwise, our Lord, we could not ever affirm that he was tempted. The same question, was Jesus tempted to sin? Um, 
yes and no. Yes, um, in a sense, he was tempted because there was a temptation element there, but there is nothing on his heart that gripped uh, to sin. So that's why James will speak in terms that God cannot be tempted by anything. All right. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. If someone found it, they can read it. Thank you, Darwin. So a thing, a thing or two here that I want to comment is that, um, you know, God is not the origin of our temptation. Uh, so for those that claim either the biology or the circumstances or the influences that they had in their life, that's not what it's leading you to that sin. It is your own sinful heart that is leading you to that, like any other sin. Um, and then he says, let no one be tempt- tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted and carried away when he's enticed by his own lust. The word lust there is, is the word not just sexually, it's the word for desire, for strong desire. Um, their, their preferences. And then the word own in the Greek is hedios, is where we take the word idiosyncrasy, the particularities of each person. Um, it's basically saying here that um, sin in our sinful human heart has a tailored made temptation. So what might be a temptation for me might not be a temptation for Jeremiah or for Sonia or for Lindsay. It, it will be different for every one of us. Some of us will be more inclined to be impatient and to be tempted to be impatient. Other of us will be tempted to lust after a woman. Others might be tempted to lust after someone of the same sex. Um, and that's the, the, this hideous, you know, what he's saying here is that each person have a sinful heart, but how that heart will cling to, what that heart will, sinful heart will cling to is different from, for every person. Now, it doesn't mean that people have to succumb to temptation. Um, living part in this, this sin-cursed world, yes, people can't um, refuse temptation apart from Christ. Um, but think about 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So there is an ability for the believer to bear that temptation, to say no to that temptation, and to not succumb to it. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What James is describing is, is if the person gives away to that temptation and sin will be conceived. And I think here, not just on, on the physical level, it's like, oh, because there, there is a sect that say, well, you're, if, as long as you're not acting on it, it's fine. No, it's not. Um, for you to indulge on those thoughts that popped into your head is just as simple as acting it out. One can experience temptation without succumbing to it. The Puritan John Owen wrote an entire treatise on this subject um, in his book of temptation. He focuses on the meaning Jesus' admonishing admonition to the disciples. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He notes that entering into temptation does not necessarily mean to be conquered by temptation, to fall down under it, to commit the sin or evil that we're tempted to, or to omit the duties that are opposed. 
A man may enter into temptation or be tempted, and yet not fall under that temptation. God can make a way for man of escape, as 1 Corinthians 10.13 says. God is faithful, and he will provide a way of escape. Indeed, a person can enter into the throes of temptation without actually succumbing to it by the commission of sin. Another passage differentiates the temptation from sin is Hebrews 4.15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So Christ was tempted, yet he didn't succumb to sin. So Jesus himself was tempted, but he did not sin. However, the question raises, if Jesus as the perfect son of God had no indwelling sin, how could he be lured and enticed by his own desire? Well, he couldn't. That's the, the, um, because he didn't have that lure on his heart that drew him to temptation. But temptation itself is not a sin. Otherwise, our Lord would have sinned. B, temptations may arise from within. It is from the flesh, from the world, situations or circumstances, particular allurements, from the devil. Temptation arise internally, James 1, externally, Hebrews 4, uh, or multiple possible avenues. Um, you know, someone might be watching. The same thing with uh, someone struggling with pornography. They might be watching a movie, and all of a sudden an image pops out there they are tempted to have a heterosexual thought and lust. They, well, I'm talking about the, the heterosexual first, and in the same way, the homosexual. Now, he's going to make a little distinction here on that. Sin occurs not simply at a level of outward actions, but inward thoughts and intentions. That's what Matthew uh, chapter 5, 27 and 28 says. Um, this is a theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount, but specifically with regard to adultery, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his or her heart. So the phrase lustful intent is key here. Jesus reminds us that the intentions of the heart matter. But is all physical attraction the same as looking at someone with lustful intent? I don't think so, he says here. There would be no space for temptation. Surely not all looking is longing, and not all seeing is sinning. Recently, I, I had a conversation with a guy that um, had struggled with pornography before, and um, he's, he's now married, um, and... His, his wife is just always on the lookout. You know, as he's walking in grocery store, he's like, oh, you lost after her. You just did it. I saw it. I'm like, I, no, I didn't. I, I know my heart. And, you know, and I know this guy, it's beautiful transformation that even before he got married, how the Lord changed him. But he's always under this radar. <laughs> and, and so, and I just use this as an illustration as to, you know, uh, otherwise, you, how are you going to walk? I mean, think about Brazil, <laughs> and it is just everywhere. You know, you go to the beach, and the women are just out there, and so it is what you do with that look. Do you, do you linger? Do you entertain those thoughts? Um, 
So parsing this covet desire is, is hard, but yet scripture differentiates the two. It is possible to be angry and not sin. Someone can be tempted to be angry and not sin. Um, other sins like lying are easier to parse than the desire. Um, certainly one takeaway here is that we ought to take special care to guard our hearts against situations that could potentially stir up desire. Now, there is a, a second thing he says here is that no desire is neutral, neutral per se. All desires and motivations are with respect to God. What do he mean by that? Some desires wouldn't exist apart from the, from the fall. Okay, so heterosexual desire for a man for his wife, that, that is fine, right? But with the fall, things got distorted. And the desire that man has for a woman now, it is misplaced. They might have a desire for someone that is not their wife, like in adultery, or someone that are not married, they're desiring to um, commit uh, fornication. But some very specific uh, inherently um, came after the fall. Some same-sex attraction is one, desire to harm someone, desire to desire for the praise for man. Their direction is inherently away from God. The other desires, this direction may be inherently good, uh, but can be inevitably tainted by sinful intentions. For example, a desire for excellence becomes perfectionism. I can desire perfection so much that now it becomes my angle of life. A desire to rule well becomes authoritarianism. Attraction for the opposite sex becomes now lustful craving. So though these directly divergent and inordinate desires are not necessarily acts of sin in and of themselves, they represent vestiges of the indwelling sin, the flesh, that will certainly erupt into sinful acts of commission and omission, both outwardly and inwardly, apart from the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, it is appropriate to seek to change at the level of our desires. Galatians 5.24 says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So those that believe, really, um, it's not just at the behavioral level. I'm just not acting it out. No, in Christ you are able to change your affections. You don't need to give in to the flesh. Galatians 5, 16, 26 also differentiates the desires of the flesh from gratifications of those that are actually the works of the flesh. It has this distinction. There's the works of the flesh, and then there's the desires of the flesh. Both are sinful. But how do you respond to them? Even so, Paul tells us that sanctifying work of the Spirit begins at the level of desires. So he commands elsewhere, put to death, therefore, what is actually earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, Colossians 3.5. All right? Um, what I think I'm going to do here, because we're getting close to, um, I don't know, the people are itching to have comments or questions, but I did want to um, 
you to listen to this podcast um, right now here on reparative therapy. If you have any questions and comments that we're not able to address, uh, we can, uh, you can come to me and we'll, we'll talk, okay? But you can, you can play that. On um, this edition of Truth and Love. And I want you to notice that this reparative therapy not, just a pause there quick. It's nothing to do with conversion, <laughs> even though they use conversion therapy. Um, so I, why am I bringing this up? Because when you have conversations out there in the world, they might refer to conversion, and you're thinking, oh, we're all for it. We're, we're, we're supportive of conversion. It's like, no, this is not, what, what do you mean by conversion? What I mean by conversion is something else than you mean by conversion. So let's just, all right. The Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions to the problems that people face. This week on the podcast, I am always thrilled to have my predecessor and one who's very familiar to this particular podcast because he, he started this podcast during his tenure as the executive director of ACBC, Dr. Heath Lambert, who's now the senior pastor at the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida. You guys are familiar with the works that he's put out, his theology of biblical counseling, his finally free fighting for purity with the power of grace, his biblical counseling movement after Adams. He's currently working on some new resources as well. Heath, I'm so grateful for you. You guys know Lauren, his wife, and he's the father of three children. I'm so grateful for his work at ACBC, inherited a, a wonderful place to work and to lead. And today, Heath, our task is to talk about this issue of reparative therapy. So welcome back, I, I should say, to the podcast. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this topic. Hey, I'm glad to be back. I am, as I always say to you, in front of people, to your face and behind your back. I'm very, very grateful for you. I think you're doing a great job and I'm thankful to be here talking about an important topic. Yeah, this is critical. So guys, just so that you're aware of what's happening, we've, we've talked about this on the podcast before. The issue of reparative therapy or what's known some, in some circles as conversion therapy, there is some confusion, Heath, and this is what we need to, to get on the table, That, that it, and we need to make this very clear. You've written about this in the past, but there's still some confusion about this idea of conversion therapy. So first of all, I want you to talk about what in the world is conversion or reparative therapy, and then we're going to get into how we think about this relative to biblical counselors. So, so tell us a little bit about what are we even talking about in relation to reparative therapy? Yeah, so when, when we talk about reparative therapy, we are talking about a specific therapeutic secular intervention that is meant to help people who struggle with homosexuality, particularly male homosexuals, it is meant to help them resolve their homosexual feelings and to begin to act out in heterosexual ways. It was really pioneered by a guy named Joseph Nicolosi, who created the National Association of Research and Therapy of Homosexuality, or NARTH. I think he was the co-founder of that, maybe. And Nicolosi has, recently, has died in recent years. I'm not exactly sure sure when he died, but uh, the the therapy that he pioneered, championed through his through his life, 
was reparative therapy. And, and the way I boil everything down is, is I talk about, if you can understand three realities about reparative therapy, you'll understand the basic gist of it. So first of all, they are identifying a problem. That's the first part. They're identifying a problem. And the problem as reparative therapy sees it is to explain the origins of homosexuality as being grounded in a relational break between parents and their children, specifically between dads and their boys. And so the, the way they think of the problem is that there is distance between a dad and his son, the son feeling distance from his father develops a relationship of closeness with his mother begins to identify with his mother instead of, as we would hope a boy identifying with his dad. And as he grows in closeness with his mother and in distance from his father, Nicolosi's phrase is the exotic becomes erotic. So, so just as a boy growing close to his dad begins to have erotic feelings for the distant woman and there the exotic becomes erotic. So a boy growing up close to his mom and distant from his dad, the exotic male becomes the erotic. And so boys begin to, according to reparative therapy, they, they begin to envy the masculine bodies and relationships with masculine men that they were denied in their close relationship with their dad. So, and they, and they honestly believe that homosexual activity is a reparative effort to repair the breach between the father son relationship. So that's the, that's the problem. Then the second part is the process, the process of reparative therapy. Every, every counseling intervention has a process and for reparative therapists, they, they seek to repair the damage between the father son relationship with therapy. This is not what reparative therapists say, but I think listeners will understand what I mean if they say that reparative therapy becomes a sort of therapeutic reparenting. Mm -hmm. You enter into a platonic, it's supposed to be platonic, it's not always platonic, that's part of the problem, but, <laughs> but you're supposed to enter into a platonic relationship with your same-sex therapist, and as you rediscover those emotions and develop closeness, that breach that existed between you and your father is repaired, and so reparative therapy. The goal of reparative therapy, the purpose of it, so you got problem, process, and purpose. Look at that Baptist alliteration. That was beautiful. I know, look, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the purpose of it is to realize your sexual desires mm -hmm. in heterosexuality. And so, so the reparative therapists like Nicolosi and others are very, very clear that as the therapeutic relationship works itself out, as those tensions are resolved, heterosexual desires will be a natural result of the therapy. And actually, they don't, they don't judge therapy to be successful until those heterosexual desires are in place. And so that's, in a nutshell, reparative therapy. Yeah, and it's important for our listeners to pay attention to the language that, that Heath is using to describe this. You, you'll, If you've studied any secular psychology, you, you'll understand the roots of Freud, Freudian language that, that rooted in Oedipal complex, those ideas, even Adlerian, Adlerian therapy as well. So those things are important. Now, one of the questions that a lot of people have is how did this gain traction in 
in the evangelical world because it, it really did in the 60s and the 70s gained a lot of traction. Part of that has to do with because the, the DSM had homosexuality as a, as a disorder, and that's what they're trying to repair. And so, you know, churches, th- this is why we talk a lot about the, the importance of the way we label things. Because when we label homosexuality, for example, a disorder, we start to look to things like reparative therapy to say, well, it's fixing what we think the problem is. We're, we're going to make them heterosexual. And listen, part of the reason that, that we would say very clearly that we're against this type of therapy is because of what it produced. The, the, the means that sometimes reparative therapy takes, the actions, the techniques that they take to accomplish this goal of heterosexuality is quite barbaric at times and is very problematic. And, and that's why you see the outcry against it, and, and in many ways, rightfully so. So there's, there's miscategorizations all over the place here. But, but you know, the primary question for us, and we, we could dive into the history of it at another time, but the, the primary question for us is where are we at with reparative therapy as biblical counselors, and then how does this different or distinguished from biblical counseling? Yeah, so th- this is funny. You know, you're talking about we, we kind of uh, got in bed together, evangelicals and reparative therapists, because because on the surface of it, it seems like there's a lot in common. Reparative therapists think that homosexuality is bad. They think it's bad in a different way than Christians think it's bad. They think it's bad in the more maladaptive, it's not going to help you kind of thing. Christians think it's bad because it disobeys the law of God. And, and they both believe they can change. Mechanisms of change are very, very different. But Christians were just happy to have a partner back a couple of decades ago with some people who were agreeing that this was bad and agreeing that people could change. And when you put that together with the relative ignorance of every Christian, no disrespect to anybody who's who's listening, but, but Christians just tend to be ignorant about how to help people with with complex problems. And so it's like, Hey, there's this Reese, there's a set of resources out here. They agree it's bad. They want to help. I'll read that. Cause I don't know what else I'm doing. People just kind of stumbled into it and we're happy to have a partner, but that ignorance, notwithstanding reparative therapy really is at odds with the Bible. Mm-hmm. I remember when we were doing the ACBC conference back in 2015 on homosexuality, and I'd never seen anything like it. There was hundreds of protesters out on the street. There was news helicopters and news trucks. Next thing I knew, because it was on the campus of Southern Seminary, I was being told I had to go do a press conference with Al Mohler. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And I walk into this room and the Washington Post is there, and the New York Times is there, and all of these cameras are there. And I'm going, we're having a conference about homosexuality being wrong. Like, <laughs> how is how is this in the news? Like, I was in USA Today because I was saying homosexuality is wrong. And I'm like, okay, something's gone wrong here. And uh, I remember as I was answering questions from the reporters at that news conference, they could not grasp. They're saying, but this is reparative therapy. And they're saying, no, it's not. They're saying, yes, it is. And I said, no, it's not. And the way I explained it, and at least the reporter from the Washington Post seemed like she got it when I said it this way, that, that we're talking about three different responses to homosexuality. One response is the popular secular response that says homosexuality is okay. Whatever you want to do, do it. That's fine. Be who you want to be. Then there is the response of reparative therapy that says, hey, homosexuality is abnormal. You're doing with the human body what it wasn't designed to do. It's not going to work out well. People are hurting. They want help. Let's come up with some strategies that can help them. 
And then there is the response of the Bible. There is the Christian and evangelical response. There's a biblical counseling response that says homosexuality is a sin against a holy God. You are not allowed to. It's not up to your decision whether you would like to do it or not. God says you must not do it. Change is therefore required and change is possible but not by therapeutic intervention. Change is possible by a dispensation of grace from the living Christ. And we are told in the Bible how we can lay hold of that grace through the sufficient scriptures that tell us how to change. Those are two very, very different things. And I'll, I'll even just point, so, the, so we would say the problem is not just that this is maladaptive. We'd say the problem is that this is sin. The process, we would say, involves the crucial intervention of Jesus Christ to change you and involves laying hold of specific scriptures to put off sin and put on righteousness. And we would say the goal is not, and this is where people can also be confused, the goal isn't heterosexuality. In the Bible, if you have general heterosexual desires, that's identified as lust. The, The sexual desire that is good is when you have sexual desire for your opposite sex spouse in marriage. And so what we would say the goal is for Christians is not heterosexuality. We would say the big goal is Christ-likeness and righteousness. And underneath that, we would say it is chastity so that you are putting off all sinful desires until you are in marriage. And then the only desires that you're putting on are the desires for your opposite sex spouse. That's a huge distinction and one that needs to be made and clarified over and over and over again. And for those of you who are listening, please pay careful attention to how he distinguishes those things, because what's happening in the culture at large is the idea of conversion therapy or reparative therapy. Those are the two ways that you'll hear this. All right. So I hope that you you saw the distinction here, because especially when you're helping someone, what you're giving them is the hope of the gospel. Is the hope of the gospel that Christ came to save sinners like you and me. Um, our goal is not to, to transform them. This is a byproduct of, of, of Christ's work in their life. Um, some people might not get married. Um, and so they might not fulfill that heterosexual desire, you know, that, that the Lord has given them. Um, and I'm not going to read it. You can take a look at it. Our identity is not defined by our desires. You know, in the same way when I taught um, addictions, right, um, we don't say, oh, I'm a former addict. <laughs> I'm a former a homosexual. You know, yeah, Paul talks about that as such was some of you, but you're no longer that. The identity of the believer is in Christ. It, their inclination, their temptations might be connected to a specific sin, but that's not who they are. And I think that's uh, one of the main ways, obviously, I can possibly um, cover here everything when it comes to counseling and people, but it is coming back to the desires. Why is that you're seeking in that homosexual person? Is, is that the affirmation? It is, is the love of the community um, what you're seeking that you can't find in God and in his directive law. So I just wanted to say this, that ultimately, you know, our, our identity is in Christ. And for a person that uh, might be struggling, that might be in our church, 
how do we help them? You point them, you know, yes, this is simple. Um, yes, there is a possibility that you can be tempted, but you don't need to succumb to, to that temptation. There is hope in Christ. There is freedom from the works of the flesh and the desires of the flesh. That's why the Son came, to set people free. And, and when they're free, they're free indeed. I'm going to pray, and if you have questions and comments, you're welcome to come and, and, and do it personally because we're uh, really um, tight on time. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for um, the hope of the gospel for every sinner um, in this room, for the hope of the gospel that gave us life in Christ, that forgave our sins, um, pardoned our debt with God, that we're not enduring his wrath anymore because Christ has suffered in our behalf. And he has suffered in our behalf to give us a new life, Lord, a life that is not enslaved to sin in any form. I pray, Father, that we'll be able to present this gospel to anyone in need, including those that are um, inclined to same-sexual attraction or homosexuality. You came to save them as well, as well as you did us. Lord, there is no, um, nothing too dark or dirty that you cannot forgive. And Lord, more, you, gave, you came to give an identity that people doesn't, don't need to be defined by their desires, but they can be defined by who they are in Christ. Pray, Lord, that we would speak boldly of this and with compassion. Lord, we know that, that this is not a, a sin that it is easy uh, to deal with, but yet... Um, it is a sin like any other, and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that raised Jesus from the grave, is able to give them life and life in abundance. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.